0: Revelation chapter number 5 this evening. Preacher said he didn't know where I was going to be preaching from or what I was going to be preaching on. He started in the manger at Bethlehem and I'm going to start at the back of the book. (laughs) We got it covered on both sides. He started in the manger. I'm starting at the throne. And I'm very excited about this sermon. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture in all the Bible. Even in prayer leading up to this uh, this. Evening, uh, speaking to the Lord about this sermon, I just told him there's no way I can, I can adequately do this passage justice. It is by far one of the deepest and most powerful passages in all the Bible. And I, I, I kind of just told him, I don't know if there's ever yet been one preacher do it justice. But I'm asking that he would help me preach it to the best of my ability through his Holy Spirit tonight. Revelation chapter number 5 Verse number 1, really if you if you look throughout the Bible, and specifically in the New Testament, it is very silent on the matter of worship. You would be surprised at how little there is in the New Testament about worship. Early on in the monarch history, men like Noah, men like Abel, uh, the men before Moses, uh, there was very little restriction on worship is actually very much a free-for-all, so to speak, and uh, God accepted their worship. Um, And and once Moses came along, more specific uh, laws and customs and practices regarding feasts, regarding uh, special appointed days and times and seasons became much more of a structured system. And uh, so throughout the Bible we see worship changes quite a bit. And in regards to the New Testament, very, very little is said about worship. Very little. In fact, I think if you'll look at the Christmas story of Jesus being in that manger, that's probably what the Bible has the most to say in the New Testament about worship. Uh, Just those wise men coming to worship. Those shepherds coming to see what was in that manger. So very little is said in the New Testament about worship. And I was reading one commentator's thoughts on that. And boy, I really did enjoy what he had to say on it. He said... Maybe the reason it's so silent is because in the New Testament the expectancy is your life is to be lived in a manner of worship. It's not just a moment by moment situation. It's not just this one time where God truly reveals Himself to you. But we have the Holy Spirit of God that lives in us each and every day. And the Holy Spirit leads, guides, and directs us if we want Him to and if we'll listen to Him. And we have God revealing Himself to us at all times of the day. And so in the New Testament, there is no curtain separating us from the Holy of Holies. That's been torn. We have direct access. There is no priest. There is no need of any of those things. We have direct access. And therefore, worship is not like the Old Testament in the sense that it was a meeting or a feast or a festival. No, 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 no. Worship is your life each and every day, Christian. It is complete submission, a song of singing, and a a heart of service to God. That's what your life is to be. And that's why we starve for worship. That's why we crave and hunger for it. That's why we look at it as if it's this thing off in the distance, almost a mirage that other people have had, and we don't. It's because we're not willing to submit. We're not willing to serve, and we're not willing to sing. So tonight, I just simply want to look at this. If we're going to really understand what worship is in the New Testament, we're going to look at it and what it is for us, we have to begin with the very basics of it. And that's why I want to talk to you tonight about the definition of worship. Revelation chapter number 5, verse number 1, the Bible says, "...and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals." And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed to open the book, and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as if it had been slain. Oh, I'm sorry, let me read that again. As my eyes began to water, I read that incorrectly. Stood a lamb, not as if it had been slain. There's a very big difference. Stood a lamb as it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, and are the, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts... And the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, then we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them that was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and is under the earth, oh, and, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever Endeavor. In our passage, chapter number 5 opens with the introduction of a scroll, a book. This book contains writing both on the inside and the outside, the, the front of the cover and the back of the cover. It kind of speaks to the thought that there is nothing more that could be written on the topic that this book contains. We know very little about this book. Many commentators have suggested what it might be. Some believe this book is the Ten Commandments. I don't know. Some believe this book is the title deed to the whole world. Some might even say that this is the transaction receipt of the purchase of redeemed saints. I don't know. I couldn't tell you for the Bible is silent on the matter. But based upon what John's reaction is to to the scroll, to the book, it's very important it's opened. I, I can't tell you what it is, but it mattered a lot to John. You know why? Because the Bible says as he looks at all that's going around, man, all the the, the dramatics of the scene and, and all the, the, the amazing sights that he's seeing, he looks at God sitting on the throne and in his right hand is this book, this scroll, if you will, and this scroll, we don't know what it is, but... But when this strong angel stands up and says that there's nobody worthy to open the book, John weeps. I don't know what it is, but it's very important it gets opened. And we find that as the, the Bible moves on, we, you'll, you'll see and we'll study this tonight, but there's, there's someone who is found worthy. And after this scene of exaltation plays out, This entrance, if you will, of this this wonderful individual. The only individual, mind you. The only one. See, the strong angel couldn't open it. The ones on the earth couldn't open it. The ones already in heaven couldn't open it. And the ones under the earth, that includes the devil himself, was not worthy of opening the book. But there was only one worthy to open the book. And the last four verses of our chapter tonight, we find... What in my estimation is the best worship service held in all the Bible. I once had a man ask me if I believed in corporate worship. I do now. Completely, universally, everyone at this stage is singing praises to God. It is corporate. It is universal. It is all encompassing. And I want to look at what the definition of worship is. Based from this passage, I've been in all sorts of styles of worshiping churches. I've heard all sorts of different brands of worship, if you will. I've seen videos of churches. I have actually been in churches. See, I grew up in our church, and you're pretty accustomed to what goes on in our church. I went, and uh, when I finally met my wife, I went in, to church in North Carolina. And I tell you what, I love going to church in North Carolina. Those people love the Lord with all their heart, and I believe with all my heart, they're sincere when they're uh, singing, and they're sincere in their search for God. I I love going to church in North Carolina. I've been to church where uh, I was a little appalled at people's reactions, to be quite frank with you. We went to one, one service one time where everybody was just, I mean, I was having trouble hearing the preacher because people were shouting so loud. In fact, people even began to interrupt the preacher as they wanted to give testimony. And I'll tell you right now, that didn't sit too well with me because your testimony certainly isn't going to be as powerful as what that preacher's saying. I remember sitting there, and uh, me and Dad were uh, listening, and we were joining in and trying to hear what that old preacher was saying. And, and man, this this one guy just stood up right in front of us, and began to scream at the top of his lungs, and. And I couldn't hear anything. And then this man got so full of whatever he was full of and he began to run around the church just as fast as he could, shouting. And I tell you, my attention was drawn away from the preacher. And now I'm looking at this, what I only could conceive as the real life reenactment of the maniac of Gadara playing out in front of me. I didn't know. I've been in churches like that. I have been in churches where Uh, I had to wake up at 5 in the morning so that I could go with one of the employees of that church to rehearse what was going to happen throughout the day. I remember waking up that early and everybody brought donuts and everybody got in the video room. They had a, a staff meeting and then they sent the choir to their place, and they, uh, the only person missing was the preacher actually, but everybody else was there. The The special singers were there, the cameramen were there, the people that were running the production were there, and I'll never forget as one of the employees told the choir to fake clap. You see, they were clapping as they were singing. I guess they were full of the spirit, I don't know, but it was interfering with the mics, so they weren't allowed to do that. All they could do was fake clap. They said, that's what they had to do the whole time. They were saying, oh, happy day. I don't know what they were singing, but that's what they were singing. And they had to clap, but it was only fake clapping. I've been there and I remember thinking to myself, this doesn't seem authentic at all. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, they, they're probably noble in their endeavors, but they were rehearsing something and it felt a lot more like a presentation than it did an actual service. I've experienced many different styles of what some may call worship. But to be very honest with you, who am I to stand in judgment of what legitimate worship is? I can't tell you whether those people in North Carolina are sincere. Frankly, I can't tell you if you're sincere. I can't tell you if the people in that one service where they were screaming and running and handling snakes... We left before they brought them out. But but I can't tell you if they were sincere and I can't tell you if those that were rehearsing it and had it down to moment, moment by moment cues. I can't tell you who was sincere. I can't tell you what the right kind of worship is. All I can do is tell you what the Bible says worship is. The Bible doesn't say much about worship specifically in the New Testament. But I believe it would behoove us to find out what the word worship means. The word worship comes from two Old English words. The first one being worth, and the second one being sip. Worth ship. This may surprise you, but worth means worth. It speaks of having value. Ship is the same word that we would hear like in friendship or citizenship, it's speaking of the quality of something. When we hear of a friendship, we speak of the quality of friends. You see, the, the value of friends. We have a friendship. And so, it actually, if you were to, just to dissect the word worship, it means the act, or more, more effectively communicated, the value of worth. The quality of worth. And I tell you, as I began to study this sermon, that struck me. Because for a whole entire year we've been talking about worthiness, worth, value. And so it could be said that worship is the activity of expressing His worthiness. It's just the activity of expressing His worthiness. And this year has been nothing but An entire year dedicated to making sure that our lives are lived out in such a manner that we are living a life that is worthy of His worthiness. That the things that we do and the words that we say and the the, the actions that we do, we would make sure that those align equally and adequately to the worthiness of our God. The activity of expressing His worthiness. Let me ask you something. Is Jesus worthy? Is He worthy of living a life for? Is He worthy of giving your very best? Really, that's what the question boils down to. Worship is not whether you're going to go to a concert. Worship is not whether or not you're going to read your Bible. Worship's not how good of a prayer warrior you're going to be. Worship is... Actively engaging and expressing the fact that Jesus is worthy of living for every day, living for Christ, why? because he 's worth it. Why is he worth it that 's what I want to talk about tonight. the definition of worship number one he 's worthy because of who he is. Verse number five in our passage we'll see three different titles assigned to Jesus Christ. Number one, the Bible says, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, and we find the first title assigned to Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now back in the book of Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, as Jacob was delineating each title and each role that his sons were to play, he was not only saying it about them, but he was saying that about their children. And he was dictating and and delineating what each and every tribe was going to be. And as he came to Judah, he he spoke that he would be the ruler of the the tribes, and that his sons would be the kings. And he denoted that they would be the kingly tribe. In fact, Jacob said of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Amen. Judah was the kingly tribe that was the one by which David came out of, and, and Solomon came from. It was the kingly tribe of Israel. But this doesn't just stop with Judah in association with Judah. It speaks of a lion. And a lion speaks of courage, authority, and victory. Somebody told me recently that in some of the woods that I've been hunting, there's a lion walking around. Yeah. Bless. You, know what I, you know what I decided to do? Stop hunting there. <laughs> you know why? Because there's a lion there. And if me and a lion have to go to tango, sometimes I say I'm crafty like a cat, nimble like a cat. But I think if I had to go hand-to-hand blows with a cat, it would win. You know why? Because the lion's victorious. It's powerful. It speaks of overcoming. So when the Bible speaks of Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah, it is saying that he is the victorious and conquering king. He's the Messiah that was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, 15, and he is the fulfillment here in Matthew chapter number 2. He came from nothing, but he is the king. And it's an amazing thought to me that the king of all decided to take a demotion to be a servant of all. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He is the king. And I want you to know that there may be those that deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be some that take a, just a, a strictly... Uh, only theological approach to it. In fact, they they would say that God the Father is supreme and God the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ take a subservient role to Him. But I'm here to tell you that God the Father would not be in that category. God the Father in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 says unto the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness uh, is the scepter of Thy kingdom. See, Jesus Christ is not secondary. He's not subservient to the Father. God the Father refers to Jesus as God. He's God. And He's a righteous King. And He's worthy. It's amazing how people will serve their King. I'm I'm reminded of those men that David just wanted. He longed for a drink from the well. And they risked their life and limb to go and get that drink. And David was so moved with their actions that he just poured the water out. It's amazing what people will do for their king. Let me ask you, what will will you do for yours? What are the limits to your servitude for your king? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Number two, he is the root of David. Verse number five, the root of David... On 14 different occasions in the New Testament, Jesus was called the son of David. It speaks of his lineage, certainly of David being one of his forefathers. But Matthew chapter 22 has an interesting passage of scripture. As the Pharisees approached Jesus, they, Jesus said unto them, What think ye of Christ, whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. You see, they were correct in saying that. He was from, he was a a son of David, but his response to them caught them off guard. He saith unto them, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies my footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he son? You see, while the Bible often refers to Jesus as the son of David, just like this passage of Scripture is referring to the Pharisees, they had no answer. They also had no answer when Jesus looked at them and said, Before Abraham was, I am. You see, a root comes before the sprout, does it not? A root comes before the fruit. If David is the fruit, who's the root? It's Jesus. Jesus here is speaking about his eternality as the the 24 elders in our passage say, he is forever and ever. Before Abraham was, I am, that's what Jesus claims. And the Pharisees got mad about it and they got disgruntled about it, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what people think, Jesus claims to be eternal. In the beginning was God. Okay, well, let's consult other passages of scriptures. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ was in the beginning, and there was not a single thing in this world made that was not made by Jesus Christ. He is the eternal God. He is the root of David, eternal God. And He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. He's not only the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, verse number six, and this just happens to be my favorite title. He is the lamb. He is the lamb. Now verse number six tells us that he's a lamb, but if you'll read there with me, it paints a pretty unique picture of a lamb. In fact, I was at, uh, what's that, uh, where do we go? Mainstay Farms yesterday and And they had some lambs there. And I'll tell you, not one of them looked like this lamb here in this passage. The Bible says, and this lamb stood having seven horns. Now, I only counted two on the ones that I saw yesterday. At the most, this lamb had seven eyes. Now, that would be very creepy, very similar to like an insect, right? I don't know, but that's what this lamb had. And... And, and it says that there were seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And if you know anything about interpreting the book of Revelation, you'll find that this is not literal in the sense that this lamb actually had seven horns and, and seven eyes, and, and it didn't have seven spirits. In fact, what it's saying is the seven horns speak of power and authority. If you ever look at a king, sometimes when kings would go to war, they would have horns on their helmet. It spoke of authority. It displays power. Even in nature, many uh, female animals, like a, a doe, or even like the sheep or the rams that we see on mountains, the does or the female doesn't have those type horns. But what does the male have? They have giant horns sometimes. What does that speak of? It speaks of authority. So. What does the term seven have anything to do with anything? Well, seven is the term of completion in the Bible. It's perfection. When the Bible says that this lamb had seven horns, it's not speaking of seven literal horns. It's speaking that Jesus had perfect power. What is the seven seven eyes? Well, the seven eyes are the fact that he sees all. He has perfect power. Vision and wisdom. Not only does it speak of those two, but it speaks of his, it speaks that the spirits go throughout the world and throughout the earth, seven spirits. What is that saying? It's saying that he is perfect in position. He is perfect in power. He is perfect in wisdom. If you want this to break down even farther, Bible theologians and scholars and even lay people might term it like this. Jesus Christ is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. All powerful, all knowing, and everywhere at the same time. But what's amazing to me is the Bible tells us that this lamb was led to the slaughter. Couldn't he see it coming? No, he did. Couldn't he have prevented it? Oh, he did. He could have. Well, couldn't he have gone somewhere else to, to save himself? In fact, there's another passage in the Bible that speaks Jesus could sense that they were wanting him to make him a king. What did he do? He left their presence so they wouldn't do it. Oh, Jesus can do anything he wanted to. And yet this lamb was slain for you and me. There's a story in the Bible when God asks Abraham to to take his son Isaac and offer him. The Bible tells us that Abraham obeys God with a tremendous amount of faith. In fact, God comes to him, and the Bible says he rose up early the next morning and saddled his ass. And he took Isaac and he took some servants, and they took all the supplies they needed to sacrifice. At one point on the journey, Isaac looks at Abraham and asks him a question that, as a father, I don't know how Abraham answered. Well, Father, I I see the wood, I see the fire. But where is the lamb? And Abraham, with wisdom beyond anything that I would ever have, he says, son, God will provide himself a lamb. We know the end of the story. We know that there comes a time where Abraham has his hand firmly pressed upon the knife, ready to thrust it into his son's heart there. and, And God says, no, Abraham, now I know that thou fearest me. I know that you're faithful to me, Abraham. You don't have to do that. And it just so happens that over caught in the thicket by his horns is a ram there. And God did provide himself a lamb. Amen. And Whether you'd like to admit it or whether you know it or not, Christian, lost sinner, whether you know it or not, there was a day when you and I were Isaac. We were on our way to our ultimate judgment and condemnation. And we looked at God the Father and our sin was the wood and the law was the fire and we were condemned to die. And we looked at God and we said, God, I see the wood and I see the fire, but I don't see the lamb. And God looked at us and he said, oh, don't you worry, I will provide myself a lamb. And it just so happens there in John chapter 1 we look and we see John the Baptist baptizing people and on the banks of that river there he stands up and and with the voice that sounds through the ages John the Baptist looks up and he says, Behold I see the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. You understand that day Jesus Christ became the Lamb that was slain for your sins and for my sins. Jesus Christ was the ultimate gift of God for the redemption of lost man. Oh, this lamb was all powerful and yet he laid down his strength and submitted to men. You know the reason why Jesus is worthy? Because he is our savior. Because he is sovereign. He is worthy. And this evening I can't preach to you with enough passion I, I can't spill enough tears. I can't be broken enough for you to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't make you do it. All I can say is whether you choose to do it or not, Jesus is worthy. Because of who he is. Not only because of who he is, but secondly because of where he is. Chapter number five, verse number six, I want you to see this, this is very unique. The Bible says, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. It's unique, several times on this earth, Jesus wasn't quite what we would call in the midst. There was a day when his parents lost him. Parents, you ever left your children somewhere? I was left at the church once or twice. It didn't affect me much. (laughs) On purpose, Dad said. Well, one day Jesus was left at church. And uh, the Bible says that His parents came to Jerusalem to uh, partake in the Passover. That was their custom. And then one day Jesus just stayed behind there in Jerusalem and Mary and Joseph just assumed he was traveling and the, the friends and the acquaintances and the, and the group of people they were with, they just assumed Jesus' presence was there. They traveled a day's journey only to find out as they began to search through the camp that Jesus wasn't there. Let me ask you a question. How do you lose Jesus? Can you imagine God talking to Mary? Mary, I only gave you one job. Keep up with my son. Precious cargo here, Mary. And yet she lost Jesus. While he was on this earth, his disciples followed him for about three years. And uh, at the day when he would be hung on the cross, he told them that each and every one of them would be offended of him. Every single one of them was just like Judas, really. They all denied the Lord. They all rejected Him. That's what Jesus said. And so uh, it's amazing that Jesus was lost while He was here. He was denied while He was here. And then we see that even when He came, His own people, the ones that should have been looking for the Messiah, the Bible says they rejected Him. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. And this is the condemnation that light came into the world and men love darkness rather than they love light. When Jesus came, he was rejected. He was put aside. Even the Pharisees, even the rulers, all the people were conspiring against him to to stifle his message and to shut his followers up. And they did a pretty good job at times trying to keep him silent. But the reality is in heaven and in our passage, Jesus isn't put to the side. You'll find there in verse number six, he is in the midst of heaven. You could say it like this. In heaven, everything revolves around Jesus. He is the one that receives all glory and all power and all honor and all blessing. Jesus is the central focus of heaven. Was years and years ago, for decades, men believed in what is called the geocentric theory. That is the theory that the earth is the center of the universe. It's essentially believing that everything in this universe revolves around men. And it is just that kind of philosophy that just points to the pride of men, isn't it? These people, even men, great men, wise men, brilliant men like Aristotle thought that everything in the universe revolved around the earth. Years later, we found out that it's actually a heliocentric. Everything revolves around the sun in our, in our uh, planetary system. We revolve around the sun. That's the way it works. And I wonder if maybe that's not just a microcosm of everything, really. Men like to think everything revolves around us. Men will always say that we are the the wisest. We are the best. We are uh, the ones that deserve some type of honor. But the reality is God has always said it's the Son. The Son is the center of everything. He is in the midst of everything. And Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Let me ask you. Is Jesus the center of your life? Is He the heart of your worship? Is He the heart of your work? Is Jesus the center? Jesus is worthy of being in His rightful place, right in the center of your life. Sometimes we get distracted. I'll be the first to admit it. We get distracted with things that really don't matter. You know what we like to say then? Well, my agendas, my priorities are more important than those of God. But my friend, if that's the case for you tonight, I cannot encourage you strongly enough, put Jesus Christ where he belongs. Amen. Whether you do or not, he's in his rightful place in heaven. Amen. The Bible tells us that there is one day coming, it doesn't matter how blasphemous men may be, it doesn't matter how wicked they may be, it doesn't matter how prideful they may be, there is coming a day that every tongue shall confess and every knee will bow to the preeminency and the, the the primacy of my Lord and Jesus Christ. And Jesus will be in his rightful place and men will be in their rightful place on their knees and on their face before a holy and omniscient and omnipresent, and omnipotent God. That's where Jesus is. We ought to worship Jesus because of who he is. We worship Jesus because of where he is. And finally, we worship Jesus because... Of what he has done. You cannot look through this passage. And I tell you I struggle even reading through it without breaking in tears. I struggle even making it through it. Knowing the thought of what the passage is conveying. Verse number 9. Tells us one of the things that this lamb has done. The Bible says. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain. If you were to look up the definition of this word slain, it actually means to be violently slain. This lamb was slain. Isn't it unbelievable that Jesus Christ endured more for our salvation than any man has ever endured in his life? We may hear of terrible prisoner of war camp stories, We may hear of torture. I'm telling you right now, nobody faced what Jesus Christ faced. The Bible tells us that his visage was so marred, unlike any man. There has never been a man in history that was so disfigured and dismembered as Jesus was on the cross. And what amazes me is, he saw it coming. Man, if I know you're going to throw a right hook, I'm going to duck. If I know you're going to do something to me that's shady or wrong, I'm going to get out of the way. I'm not going to let you do it. And yet Jesus Christ saw every bit of pain that he was going to have to face and he willingly accepted it. Several times along the journey, I would even say Jesus had ways out, didn't he? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew they were coming for him. Standing in Pilate's judgment hall, Pilate was begging him, pleading with him, Jesus, just tell me your side of the story. I have power to deliver you. And you know what? Jesus looked at him and said, you wouldn't have any power at all unless it was given to you from on high. I have power to give my life. I have power to take it back. Man alive, Jesus had all these opportunities to escape, knowing full well that his violent execution and his body being slain was about to happen. You know why he's worthy? Because he endured that death for me. If he's going to die like that, the least I can do is live like he wants me to. He's worthy of it. The Bible says, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. There are churches that think that singing about the blood is too violent. Maybe a little old fashioned, but I'm here to tell you they sing about the blood of Jesus in heaven. Look in verse number 9. Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred, tongue, and people and nation. Oh, they sing about the blood in heaven. You know why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You may say it's a little gory. You may say it's a little... uh, 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 hard to look at or hard to talk about, but at the end of the day, the blood is what bought your and mine redemption. So if I have to sing, oh, one more story about the blood of the cross at Calvary, I'm going to sing it and I'm going to accept it with the greatest thankfulness and gratitude that I can express because Jesus shed blood was the only thing that gains me entrance into heaven. Oh, my flesh was weak and the law was strong. I was under a weight that I could not carry and yet the blood of Christ applied to the mercy seat of God bought my salvation for eternity. The lamb was slain. That's why he's worthy, because of what he has done. Not only because he was slain, but because he achieved our salvation. Verse number 9. They sung a new song. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us unto God. Boy, we have salvation given to us freely. Galatians chapter 4 says it like this, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. It goes on in Titus chapter 3 verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy He hath saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. You see, Jesus Christ bought our salvation. There was nothing you could do to get into heaven. Nothing. No works of righteousness would gain you any type of acceptance with God, for even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags to Him. The best thing you do on a daily basis is to God something that stinks of vile and putrid rag. But somehow in the glorious salvation that we've experienced, these rags are turned to robes of righteousness. We're washed to be pure. Like the Bible says, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as so- snow. You see, Jesus Christ, when we, the day we asked Him to save us, took the fuller soap and began to scrub out all the wickedness and all the wrongdoing that we could have ever done. And I'm telling you what, it doesn't matter how much wrong you've done or how long you stayed in that wrong when you were doing it, the fuller soap cleaned it up and Jesus Christ scrubbed you up by the blood of Jesus Christ. He redeemed you and made you white and made you able to present yourself worthy of being in heaven. And I'm just here to tell you, I don't get it. But the Bible says that He saved us by His grace and by His mercy. You know why He's worthy? Because of what He's done. He was slain for our sins and He was buried for our sins. Uh, salvation now here's the good part he hath set us apart he hath set us apart look in verse number 10 the Bible says now I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself but I've been chewing this on this all day as if access into heaven was not enough you know where, where do we deserve to be right there with Satan You know the only thing Satan did wrong? He disobeyed God. You know what you and I did wrong? We disobeyed God. We are no better than him. And somehow, even though we deserve to be in the hottest part of hell with Satan, we're not even in a cardboard box in heaven. Which, by the way, would show extreme mercy. This is like those chihuahuas I was talking about last week. This would be like me accepting them into my home and giving them as much trash as they wanted. (laughs) Giving them a comfortable place to lay down. That's what... That would be mercy. That would be grace. That would be a place for us to live better than the place that we deserve. And yet, in chapter 10, we do not find His grace limited or His mercy stopped at any point. We find in verse number 10... He hath made us unto our God. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? He hath made us unto our God as kings and priests. I don't deserve the dirtiest cardboard box in heaven. And yet somehow I have a mansion. I'll tell you this, while I'm up there, I don't have to feel guilty. I don't have to go to God every day and apologize for my sins. You know why? Because they're all forgotten. He'd look right in my face and say, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't deserve entrance into this place. Much less a title or position when I get there. Under my God, you know what I recognize myself as? Flesh a failure and a reject. But unto my God, he hath made me a king and a priest. Are you kidding me? He is worthy. He's not worthy because the Bible says he's worthy. He's not worthy because psalm writers have written great psalms about him. He's not worthy because of the songs we sing or the sermons that I preach. He alone is worthy because of the person that he is and all the many blessings he's given me. He saved me. He was slain for my sins and he had set me apart to be something special when I get to heaven. Jesus Christ, even then leaving this place, this earth, said, In my Father's house are many mansions. Amen. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare for you a place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there, may, there you may be also. I don't get it. And this sermon, this month, has been chewing on me for longer than you can even imagine. I can't understand why we don't engage in worship more often. The only reason I can imagine is because Satan has sold us some bill of goods that it's different than what it actually is. Made us feel like it's this emotional high or something. No, 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 no. Worship has nothing to do with emotions. Worship is simply acknowledgement of our king. An acknowledgement of the salvation he's given us. One day after King David had assumed the throne in Israel, King Saul had obviously given him a pretty rough go at life. Three separate occasions by my account that we're aware of, Saul tried killing David. David was nothing but faithful to Saul. He uh, tried serving him. He played music for him. He was his armor bearer for a time. He supported him. Even when people spoke bad of King Saul, David stopped them. David at one point had the opportunity to slay King Saul. Y'all remember that story in the cave there? Uh, And there were those in his group uh, saying, David, this is your time. This is your opportunity. God's opening the door for you. And and David said, how can I lift my hand against the king's anointed? I, I would not dare do that. David was as faithful of a man as you can imagine. And King Saul did everything in his power to kill David. Showing no gratitude, showing no thankfulness for his loyalty. After King David assumed the the throne, we find an odd request come from the throne. King David looks at his servants and he says, is there one of Jonathan's house?" Is there one of Jonathan's house that I can show kindness to? You see, it was actually customary for kings to to slay all of the children of the previous king. Because as a child of the king, they were the rightful heir to the throne. And now King David has assumed the throne. And it would make a lot of sense and be commonplace for him to go kill all of Saul's children and grandchildren. And yet the first request we see David making is this. Is there one in Jonathan's house that I can show kindness to? Word comes back to King David and they say, There's a young man by the name of Mephibosheth. He's crippled. He can't do anything for himself. In fact, others are having to take care of him. He's no threat to you, King David. King David says, I want you to go get him. King David brings him in, begins to talk to him and The first thing that Mephibosheth does is fall on his face. The Bible says, and reverence the king. You know why? Because Mephibosheth was scared for his life. Because what he deserved in common practice was death. And yet King David doesn't kill him. In fact, what King David does is he says, Mephibosheth, I want you to know this. All the land that King Saul had while he was reigning, I'm going to give it to you. All the land. I'm restoring it to you. All of the land. Not only am I going to restore all that, but I'm going to bring to you servants. I'm going to give you the best servants that I can, and they're going to take care of that land. They're going to plow the land, and they're going to till the land. But here's the cool part, Mephibosheth. They're not plowing it for you, so to speak, because you're not going to need it. They're, they're going to feed their own children with that. You know why? You're not going to need it, Mephibosheth? And I can imagine the, the emotions... What's going through Mephibosheth's mind? Probably just in utter shock. And probably if King David looked at him and said, You're not going to need it, Mephibosheth. I'm thinking probably in the back of my mind, Mephibosheth says, Well, a dead man don't eat very much. And King David says, The reason you're not going to need it is because for the rest of your life, every time I sit down at my table, there's going to be a spot for you. You're going to eat my meat. You're going to eat at my table. You're going to share in the bounty of my reign like nobody else will. Mephibosheth's condemnation certainly was death. And yet we see the undeserved, lavishing favor of the king expressed in kindness towards him. If you study that passage, you know what Mephibosheth's reaction is? He falls down on his face. What is worship? It is actively expressing his worthiness. You know what we were? Cripple. Unable to do anything for ourselves. With no right, no deed to anything in this world. Look at me, teenagers. If y'all can't look at me right now. Something's wrong with y'all. We were cripples. On our way to hell, we were dying. With no right to any type of great gift, no no type of mercy or love, none of it was deserved. And out of nowhere one day the king looked at his son and said, is there someone that I can show kindness to? and the son says oh I can think of someone and the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world came to this earth and lived 33 sinless years was placed upon the cruelest cross that you can imagine was buried in a borrowed tomb the reason it was borrowed is because he wouldn't need it very long because on the third day he rose again why did he need to rise because one day he's coming back and he is going to make me something special to my God not a sinner not a reject not a cripple I'm going to be as a king and a priest to my God man I don't get it but the least that i can do is fall down on my face and say jesus you are worthy of my admiration jesus you are worthy of my praise jesus unto you be all glory and honor and power and blessing and i'm going to live my life as if you are worthy